Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. On today's episode, we have the privilege of speaking with Greg Shell. Greg is a partner at Goldman Sachs, where he leads the Inclusive Growth Fund, a private equity fund making investments in healthcare, workforce upskilling, and financial services that profitably improve people's lives. Greg has a very impressive background. Before Goldman, he worked at Bain Capital Double Impact as a managing director. Prior to that, he held roles as a portfolio manager at GMO, a senior investment analyst at Columbia Management Group, and as a consultant in Bain's strategy and private equity practices. He earned his BA from MIT and his MBA from Harvard Business School. We dive into impact investing, the enormous investment opportunities it presents, and some of its common misconceptions. We also talk about the evolution of our economic system and how capitalism can achieve its highest potential by driving our shared prosperity. We also get to hear about Greg's incredible new fund and how he is using the private equity model to drive change in society while delivering competitive returns for investors. Greg is incredibly articulate, a deep thinker, and he shares very incisive ideas in this conversation. I was fired up talking to Greg, and I hope for all of you listening, you find it as valuable as I did. And without further delay, here is Greg Shell. Greg Shell, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast today, sir. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from? Ross, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm in my office in New York. I'm doing just fine. Another week to make some progress on all that we have going on here. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a very, very busy season, very busy end of year, busy fundraising season for all of us. I've been very, very much looking forward to our conversation, Greg. You and I met at the Milken Conference where you were a speaker. I was incredibly struck by you and what you had shared during your panel and was very, very grateful that you and I had some time together. And I'm really looking forward to this interview. Let's jump right in. We have so much ground to cover. You have so much wisdom and story to share. And we have so little time. Can you begin by sharing with our audience your story? Yeah, happy to, Ross. And first, let me just say, you're way too kind. I've equally looked forward to this opportunity to have this conversation with you. My story is really interesting. In many ways, Ross, I'll start with the professional side first. But I have been an investment professional for upwards of 25 years. A lot of that has been spent on the side of public equity. So I was an equity analyst and a portfolio manager and in many ways steeped in kind of market fundamentalism that most of us are, which basically states that markets are really, when well-built, you know, heterogeneous, we have an opportunity to have mistakes that people make cancel themselves out. So markets often get to the right answer because the density is on people who frankly know the most. And so it's an important observation to make that markets, when well-functioning, often help society get to really good outcomes but they don't always. And I think, you know, part of my brain had been deeply steeped in that perspective. Whereas, you know, there was another piece of me who really observed that in some key ways, the private sector and capitalism generally was not spinning out 
benefits in terms of rising standard of living toward enough people. And so there's some, what I would describe as market failures. And a lot of that side of me was really making direct observations, often through civic and not-for-profit service, and seeing you know the lives of ordinary people really stagnant in some key ways, not able to hook onto the mainstream economy. Ross came to the world of impact investing and used to say that this was the first time that the two sides of my brain met each other. It was the first time that I had a real integrated sense of how powerfully constructive private capital could be used. And maybe I had begun to think that we have become as a society overly reliant on the civic and not-for-profit sector to address societal challenges, as well as the public sector, municipalities, and the government writ large. And so there's something missing, which is the power of the profit motive to really get into the act and help to address some of the big societal challenges. So that has become my life's work, not just my vocation and what I do to make a living, but also my avocation is something that I love and think about deeply. Greg, as you know from our last conversation, I um, deeply share that avocation, this passionate joy in trying to utilize our economic system, our capitalist system, and all of its beauty for maximizing flourishing, for driving good in the world, and for helping everyone. Walk us through some of those career stages. You've worked at a number of firms. You were a managing director helping run Bain's double impact fund. I heard in one of your prior interviews at the Boston Globe, you had this internship where you recognized this game was being played all this time and you didn't know where decisions of where capital is allocated, how it's managed, really determines how society is shaped. Can you sort of walk through the different career steps you've had prior to Goldman and tell us a bit about your role at Goldman today? Yeah, happy to. I think in many ways, in a phrase, you can't be what you can't see. And I, like many, come from sort of lower income or working poor families, of which there are many in the country. It's hard to participate, actually, in some of the career opportunities if you're not aware of them, obviously. And so my undergrad internships really started to get closer to investing, which is its own unique story, Ross, because I really went to school to be an engineer. It got beaten out of me really quickly. (laughs) And, I, and my search for a purpose and search for a set of things that I could really excel at, I really honed in on what it would mean to go to law school. And so often my curriculum was really about that. But deep inside, and a lot of my work experience was just in the world of investing. And I really just got taken in. I read everything possible. I talked to everyone. And I was just fascinated by the opportunity to move uh, significant amounts of capital around making key decisions. So that was its own fat point of fascination, which is there was a bunch of people who make some really key decisions about the economy every day. But then the, I think the other piece of the fascination for me is, in many ways, this is a career path where very few people are really good at it and offer sustained excellence to their clients. And so the combination of this immense point of interest and the fact that it's really challenging and most people aren't good at it, It was just like a moth to a flame. I was drawn into that career because I thought, hey, there's some things about me that I think might give me a chance to be pretty good at it. I remember the first boss that I ever had told me in my interview that he was looking for people, especially young people, who his quote, Ross, was who had less than the national average respect for authority. (laughs) And I'll never forget that. And I thought, you know what? I have that. (laughs) I must be really a good fit for this role. 
But what he was trying to say is that in investing, you have to have as one of your key characteristics, the ability to stand against consensus opinion. And so you have to be able to stand out from the crowd to do and say things that allow you to make returns and opportunity for your clients. And so I felt like above all else, I know I can offer that. What I needed to do was get deeply immersed into the art and science of investing. And I did that over a number of years. And so that set me off on a journey to try to not just be good, but try to be excellent, excellent technically, excellent in my ability to draw insights from information and data, and to be able to communicate that in clear ways, and to pick my spots for where I had to place investments and bets that I knew something even for a brief moment that was different from the average of the rest of the market participants. And so that was a journey that I started in college, and in many ways, I'm still on. I think what's interesting in the way that I have evolved and certainly market structure and what's happening in society, I continue to observe how badly needed the private sector really is. And really, I've begun a sort of enhanced part of the journey where I'm totally taken in by CEOs, management teams, founders who are really utilizing the private sector business model, its ability to convene talent, the profit motive, and aiming at really pressing problems. And so this part of the journey has carried me to do what I do today, which is to use the private equity model to try to address problems and to reap the rewards on behalf of my clients for helping to address those big challenges. I'm sure we'll get into that. But the journey has been rich and rewarding and fun and fascinating and vexing and maddening. I couldn't imagine doing something different. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate you sharing the insights and the learnings along the journey. I think the average market participant sort of walks you through their resume. Greg Shell went to MIT for undergrad, did XYZ investment roles, Harvard Business School, these firms, those firms. I really appreciate that when asked to walk through your journey, you share an intellectual journey. You share a journey of insight, of learning, of discovery. I hope everyone listening catches this distinction and takes learning from that. I would love to understand if you had sort of formative experiences, whether childhood, growing up in college, that gave you this bend towards using the private sector and aiming it in all of its mechanics at solving societal problems. There, there are so many people who enter financial services and the profit motive is all that matters. Perhaps that was what they were taught when they were young. Perhaps were exposed to Milton Friedman at a young age and it left an impression for you and your sort of unique passion for making an impact, doing good while doing well, what do you think sowed those seeds for you? What inclined you that way? A couple of things. I would tell you first, the rubric that most humans, because I believe that people in the end, Ross, are basically good. Most people don't come into finance because they just want to make money alone. They want to do a good job for clients. They want to make a good living on behalf of their families because this is a very tough and stressful job and experience. Markets are complicated, but the rubric is, you know, has generally been followed that people really do well in their career financially, but then they, they give back in many ways. So I give people a lot of credit, especially those who've been very successful. They're among the most philanthropic people in society, and that's sort of well documented. It is true that there have been some bad actors, but in the main, people come to work and do an honest day's work. But what's really interesting about each individual at the level of the individual story, and you've asked a little bit about mine, is that your walk and how you've gotten to these places has everything to do with how you behave once you're in them. My own particular walk really 
is only remarkable in how rare it is today. I think we have a point of view in society that, that social mobility is robust and it is easy, maybe even random, maybe even just solely a matter of a person's work ethic and their pluck and their creativity to get to places in their career that are emblematic of the kind of progress we all think is possible in this country. The only problem with that is there is a little bit of mythology to it. There's a little bit of romanticism about the idea that you can be born into any set of conditions and just do well. And in that way, Ross, we're in many ways ruled by our exceptions. It's not that it doesn't happen, because it does. And my story is many ways testimony to the fact that it does and can happen. But the point is, is that it doesn't happen anywhere near the way that we imagine it. And statistically, it's actually quite rare. The very sobering truth is the idea that people are mostly finding it challenging to change the situation or the economic prospects that they're born into. In fact, if you looked at several variables, whether it's sort of education results or the health baseline that people have or their opportunity to participate in the economy in the ways that I have, it mostly obeys some pretty crude metrics namely something like the zip code test, which is you're born into an economic context that you mostly don't change. And so I think that is something that has begun to be completely misunderstood. It's underemphasized. It's not covered very well. And the average person doesn't command the data around what has become a stunning lack of social mobility. That's something that is really at the core of the American dream. And so this has become something that I obsess over personally. And the reason why I obsess over it personally, Ross, is because it really not just gives meaning to the work that I do, but it helps me return myself to all of the people that I grew up and around and all the opportunities in life that they didn't get. There's a little bit of survivor's guilt that I have, and I come to a proper understanding about it by getting deeper into this data. But then it also makes me think professionally that mine can be a voice that is able to shed some light on these issues as somebody who understands, frankly, a broad spectrum of societal outcomes from those among us who've just not had opportunity to take advantage of and what that can mean. And then also a version of the self who's been able to be shown opportunity and make good on it. And I know that story too. So I've always tried to hold that duality that I've lived out, but really fight on behalf of those whose talent and drive and abilities really allow them to participate in the broader economy in ways that in many senses is much greater than they're able to today. So that's what this has always been about for me, and it remains so today. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate you mentioning survivor's guilt. I've experienced it a bit myself in my own life. I'm from a very, very small rural town of 3,000 in Minnesota, and most of the people that I grew up with, the vast majority of them are still there. There's a sort of sense of having escaped and then this sort of sense of like a moral obligation to create a world where others in that situation can also fully utilize their talents and fully realize a good life, again, despite the zip code that they were born in. And so it resonates personally very deeply. I would love to segue into impact investing. And let's begin, let's set the table with, can you describe your role at Goldman Sachs? What exactly you do at Goldman Sachs? And assume a listener has a rudimentary sort of understanding. Can you give the 101 of your role at Goldman? Yeah, happy to. So I came to Goldman Sachs about a year ago to come lead a fund that we call the Inclusive Growth Fund and really commensurate with what I had done 
at my prior employer over the last seven, eight years, the impact investing ethos is really to utilize private capital. And in my case, within the private equity model, to buy and invest in companies who are doing things that can be measured and on purpose to affect the societal challenges that we know we have. In general, Ross, impact investors have focused on two big opportunities. One, planet, what we see with respect to climate science and energy transition that stems from that. Lots of investors have really leaned into this topic and decided there will be perhaps a generational opportunity to invest in the companies that are best serving society by hastening our march toward a cleaner energy future and really the companies who are successfully delivering opportunities to take carbon out of business models. That side of impact investing, I think, is sort of well chronicled. That said, the other side from the sort of planet pillar is people. In general, the idea around delivering opportunities within the world of healthcare, of education, workforce development, of financial services, there are some others like housing. Those topics tend to be more distributed, even messier, Ross, to describe and to measure because there are so many intermittent variables to talk about and to think about. So I came to Goldman Sachs to run a fund against that side of the impact investing ethos. My fund will focus on investing in healthcare models that deliver care to vulnerable and underserved populations. We can talk more about that as well, opportunities for upskilling, retraining, closing of achievement gaps and so forth. And then finally, the opportunity to help people hook onto the mainstream economy through responsible tools that help for credit repair, patronizing traditional financial services products like savings, investment insurance, and so on. So that's what I came here to do. And our hope is to not only help accelerate the businesses commercially that we invest in, but help them achieve what we describe, Ross, as impact transformation and to put them in position to deliver value to their customers in such a way that that alone will cause them to be worthy of growth, share gain, and market leadership. And if we're doing our jobs the right way, we're building a class of businesses who are very valuable because of the exceptional job they do on behalf of their constituents they aim to serve. I feel like you are summarizing a very nuanced perspective on impact investing so succinctly. I hope for some of our younger listeners, the college students, the young professionals listening, just a word for you listeners, what Greg is unpacking like tomes of wisdom in mere sentences. Greg, I think you're one of the most articulate people I've ever met in the space. And I don't say that to flatter you. I say that to point out a potential observation and just express admiration. I remember when listening to you speak at Milken, I had really high expectations. It was Stephanie Cohen who originally introduced us. Stephanie Cohen is a friend. She's like, you have to meet Greg Shell. He just joined the firm. You and him are going to hit it off and just be instant friends. And I saw you were speaking at Milken. I was really excited and high expectations. And one of the things that you said that really struck me was, quote, impact investing is where capitalists go to fix capitalism. Can you elaborate on what that means, what impact investing really means and what fixing capitalism looks like? Yeah. First, let me just say that is a quote from a friend and former colleague, but it's so important to understand all aspects of that statement. And I think first, it's important to understand that you, me, a legion of us understand that our system of democratic capitalism is important to defend, to promote, to understand its power uniquely and its ability to deliver prosperity in ways that other systems have not proven to. 
that side of the statement shouldn't be underestimated. But then there's a word in that phrase, Ross, that I want to hit on, which is the idea of fix. <laughs> there is something about what's happening, and not just in the United States, but globally, that suggests to me that this is not only the best that we can do as a society, but when you look at the outcomes that it is delivering, it's hard to argue that prosperity is being shared in such a way that feels sustainable. It's hard to argue that these results that we are getting are anything but orchestrated, in many ways, hard to change and evolve. And I'm here to say that capitalism is not supposed to look like that. Good ideas are supposed to be able to come from anywhere. Opportunity is supposed to be able to come from literally anywhere. And that's just not what you're seeing, depending on where you're born, whether it's in the Mississippi Delta, for example, or in rural areas across the, the country or in the Rust Belt today, formerly thriving areas, it feels really different to be from these places. And you tell that story too. My own personal life story is really one of the inner city core of the country. But these places, this is a lot of us, this is a lot of the country aren't participating and aren't getting opportunities that we ought to. So the self-reinforcing nature of these economic results is really what I would describe as the enemy economic opportunity is supposed to be more broadly distributed. And what we see is it's pretty narrowly distributed. So the opportunity to fix and address that requires so much from us. But the first thing is we have to undo the dogma that exists that some kind of way, this version of capitalism is the highest and best form of it. And it's just untrue. There's so many data points that we can point to, but I've always counsel people when I speak that not to believe that. There is no requirement for capitalism to work by being exploitative. There is no requirement for it to leave many people in its wake that are gasping for air. There is no requirement that requires people to work three jobs just to feed their children. It's not something that is worth defending, frankly. What is worth defending is the opportunity for anyone anywhere through their hard work to be able to make the most of themselves. If they choose to live in their hometown, no one thinks about that as something wrong for society. The point is, to the extent that they're applying for opportunities that A, they've not been well prepared for, but B, they're playing a losing game where people with advantage have effectively boxed them out for their ability to have won the last go-round and pay for their results for the next go-round. That's not how it's designed to work, or certainly that's not how we should want it to work. So I think there ought to be a rising number of voices who make the simple observation that a lot of people are struggling and perhaps we might understand that we eventually pay for their struggles in one way or another. And wouldn't it be better, Ross, if they were able to make their best contribution on behalf of themselves and their families, but also on behalf of the rest of us? Wouldn't we live in a better society, but also with a larger, more dynamic, faster growing economy? Isn't it a line right there when anyone could contemplate being anything professionally. And right now, my fear is that that is not only a relic, something that's just an idea that's not being properly fought for, but actually people are entrenched in not looking at the data that suggests that they actually are under some different impression altogether, that it's working really well. They would center like, hey, Elon or Zuckerberg have made you know tremendous living. That is a priori sort of proof that capitalism is working well, and they forget the sort of scores of people who've been left behind. And I think that's unfortunate and unnecessary. And so my job is to try to do something about it. 
when you talk about capitalism and you call the simple observations, I'm reminded of some of the most famous words of the U.S. Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident. <laughs> it's like the fact that there is still some sort of, I think, as you rightfully say, a dogmatic debate about the sort of role and function and potential of capitalism. It strikes me as very odd that some of the most educated, intelligent, sort of successful people in the world are clinging to dogma and they are not aware. They don't see it. We oftentimes at Scholars of Finance, when we're talking to our community, will say that we fundamentally believe that calling capitalism bad is simply to not know history. It's proven to be the most effective socioeconomic system to date for accelerating our shared prosperity. However, that we also believe calling capitalism perfect in its current form is simply to not know history. <laughs> As economic systems have constantly evolved as our knowledge grows and our material circumstances change, right? That capitalism, which has been evolving around us since 2019 with the business roundtable putting forth stakeholder capitalism as the new sort of primary form of capitalism, the reason it's evolving is because we know it can improve. It's the best system we've ever had, and it can be even better. And we are very firm proponents here at Scholars of Finance of what you're saying. And I appreciate how eloquently you make the point, when you extrapolate this notion out fully across taking the private equity model, allocating capital to founders, to leaders who are using top talent, the profit motive, pointing those mechanics at societal problems, if I'm summarizing what you'd said earlier properly, how would you describe like an economic system when that is implemented in mass? What does that look like when not just billions of dollars, but tens of trillions, over a hundred trillion dollars are guided by this thinking, um, these observations. What does that system look like? And what does that world that it creates look like? A couple of things. It's a fascinating thought experiment. Let me say two things that I consider to be anomalous. One, the idea that the rewards for investing this in this way are quite significant. And so sometimes, whether it's the social scientist within me or you can get caught up into theory, let's spend some more time thinking about the investor and the person who wants to exploit opportunity on behalf of clients. And that's just to say, these challenges that we've described represent big white space. And there's an investment response required to changes in the world. And so those who understand that best, Ross, are likely to be the ones who deliver most significant, most sustained return opportunities to their clients. And so my question, in many ways, to some of my contemporaries is sort of, A, do you not realize and acknowledge some of these big tectonic plates moving? And if so, whether you self-describe as an impact investor, I'm pretty indifferent to that. But are you not looking at a sea of entrepreneurs whose stated objective is to do something about the problems and opportunities they see, the question is sort of, what is your response to that? And further, what is your response to the fact that they seem to, in increasing numbers, want mission-aligned capital? They want investors who share at least some part of a worldview with them, who are able to help fuel their business models, not just with money, but with perspective, tools, frameworks, language that allows them to be better versions of themselves. So what that world looks like, I think, is one by one, us having systematically large companies who are doing important things and earning their living by creating value. 
on behalf of their constituents. And I think that strikes me as not some newfangled way to understand economics or the economy or capitalism, but really returning us to some wisdoms that we've frankly always held. So that's the first anomaly is why people are not more greedy leaning into these opportunities, number one. I think number two, the thing that's anomalous is that for all of us who are market participants, you have to double as a history major, Ross. And you mentioned this, which is to really understand what's happened over time in markets. But there are a few things that I think are interesting about, and I use the word self-reinforcing, how flexible capitalism is supposed to be. A hundred years ago, it was probably true that people found it socially acceptable to engage in child labor. Probably wasn't crazy to think children helped work the farm or family business, or even in factories. Decades and decades ago, it was normal for women to not participate in the labor force in the numbers that we see today. It was normal, and in some circles still is, to be highly discriminatory about who can work and have freedoms. Probably 30 or 40 years ago, it was normal to dump harmful chemicals in the back of a industrial plant as what people would assume was the, the an acceptable externality or a cost of industrialization. And you have to wonder, what do we do today that's considered normal, that in the future will be crazy to people of the future, whether it's things like smoking cigarettes or whether it's things like utilizing carbon, perhaps without concern for its implications. And so capitalism is supposed to evolve. That is central, actually, to what makes it so special as an economic system. Anytime that it gets sticky or it's not evolving, especially when the benefits that it spins out concentrates, and we do live in an age where that feels true to people, and we see that in the data, as I mentioned, then there's something that's supposed to be done about it. And I want to be careful to say what's done about it isn't just redistributionist thinking about just tax people who've had great economic outcomes. I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about, though, is ensuring that people can experience high opportunity where their work and their efforts can take them to places that allow them to participate in ways that, frankly, what we see is its opposite, where people are not able to participate in the economy in the ways that they could, and we suffer for it. Our economy has become overly reliant on stimulative factors. And we can talk a little bit about that when the answer clearly is to push prosperity out toward the edges. Please do unpack that a little bit. How our economy is reliant on stimulative factors. And in light of that, how you think about pushing prosperity towards the edges. Yeah. Often in life, your personal life or systematically across societies, Yesterday looks like today and tomorrow will really look like today does in many ways. But occasionally, Ross, you see these step function changes, these opportunities in time where there is a decided change. It could be in social mood. It could be in the economic construct of the day. And so what I would say is that over the last 15 or so years, and maybe stemming from the financial crisis as an example, we have normalized what it has meant to see some things that are highly anomalous to history, right? We've normalized massive Federal Reserve Bank and Central Bank globally uh, intervention and expansion of balance sheet. We've normalized that. We've normalized for a period of time until very recently a zero interest rate policy and all that that means. We've normalized incredible stimulative activities like 
fiscal policies, even to the point of direct transfer payments to people where the government is literally sending checks during this economic dislocations. We've normalized all of these things together, not just simultaneously, but almost globally. And what I would step back and just observe is that this rapid accumulation of debt and significant stimulative activity has really borrowed from the future demand. And you're already seeing some of the effects of it, but I fear we wouldn't have seen all of the effects of removing some of this stimulus so that the real economy has to shine through on its own and either express itself to be really strong or really weak. There's probably not a middle ground here. And what I would say is because we've normalized it, we've almost forgotten what it's like to have mortgage rates of something like 8%. My first mortgage was around that. I think lots of market participants who have more experience than I do would tell you their first mortgage was in the teens. And nobody, people lived in that epoch. But for a while, we have forgotten that and we may yet return to it again. But that is only to say that the reason why this has been done is because it has been observed that there's certain key points of vulnerability in our systems. We wouldn't do it were it not for the prevailing view that there was a significant need. In other words, the economy couldn't behave as normal without not just a little bit of stimulus, but like an incredible amount on a coordinated basis. And I've always worried, what does that say about the real wreckage and potential decay underneath? And what it says to me is that we will now enter an epoch where some of these problems have gotten to be more serious, not just because they're more serious for individual participants, but they've actually become, Ross, more serious for the rest of us too. Companies can't hire workers. How many times have you seen restaurants closing because they couldn't find workers? Never mind the number of open jobs that exist for people, for example, with tech skills. And so the companies that help address upskilling just as one impact theme will be companies that are really going to grow and gain share because we need them to. It's not just on behalf of the people the ordinary people that they serve. We want that for them, but it's also for in governments and municipalities and enterprise companies, large and small, who are frustrated in terms of the lack of opportunity to deliver growth that is possible if they only had the skilled labor to plug in. This gets more complicated when you see societies like ours in Western Europe and Japan getting older, and it gets more complicated still when our complicated approaches toward immigration don't allow for the influx of labor to do the many things that we need. So it's a multivariate, highly complicated set of challenges that seem to be poised to get worse if we don't do something about them. So I fear that without an enhanced understanding of these issues, we will suffer the consequences. And I think back to the ethos of impact investors, we're really trying to be careful to invest in the companies who are providing solutions both for individuals, families, communities, but also for enterprise in such a way that they're providing solutions that are quite valuable for society. So that's how I think about it. That's what our fund in many ways is meant to do, but way beyond the scope of just one private equity fund or even a community of impact and thinkers, this is really important for society writ large. And I think time is not our friend, actually. I appreciate, Greg, you ending on the urgency of doing all this work. I'm curious how the reception has been to the Inclusive Growth Fund. You mentioned you joined Goldman Sachs last year to lead this effort. How has the market been receiving it? How have your conversations been? Thanks for asking that. So I've been very pleased at how warmly we've been received by investors. It is worth saying 
Two things, however. One, this is a unique moment to raise new private equity funds for so many reasons. It's been a glorious decade of private equity fundraising and returns outcomes. In the next decade, commensurate with what I just stepped through, will be harder to achieve those same results, particularly with interest rates having increased a lot. That will matter. And so I think it's true the, the funds and teams that do well will do well because they understand the things that will work best in the economy. And we certainly hope to be part of that crowd who outperforms. But then it's also worth saying, Ross, that whether you think about it as culture wars or what have you, there is some people who are tremendously committed to thinking about the economic opportunity the way I do. I would have described a set of phenomenon in an ethos that governs how I think about the world. But I share that view with many fund groups, with many people. There are a lot of us who believe that uh, we're on the right side of history because that's where the world is going. There are some people who think that they're on the right side of history. And I would sort of take you know profound disagreements with them. But they would tell you anything that this is an inappropriate use of capital. They would describe what I laid out for you as sort of woke investing, which I think is nonsensical. They would describe for you a world that social issues should not creep into the investment process, right? And so in many ways, that debate is going to be prosecuted on the field of play. And when I say things like, hey, even in red states, you have a lot of workers, frankly, who need to be upskilled to be able to participate in the industries that you say you want to center as a part of your strategy. They have only two choices, really. Either A, you understand and agree with that, that they need opportunities to be upskilled to participate, or you don't. Because for me, I have next to no desire to engage in labels and debates of this kind. I have no desire to engage in culture war type thinking. It doesn't profit me because I'm too busy thinking about changes in the world. I just want to see to it that those workers, irrespective of where they are, get professional and economic opportunity. If you call that impact investing, I can go there with you. If you call it something else, I'm pretty indifferent. But what I do see is that that as an economic act will have to be more central going forward because it's that important on behalf of those people and the organizations that they're going to work for than it has been in the prior decades. It's the thing that helps ensure social mobility. It's the thing that makes less intractable some of the self-reinforcing results. So whatever activity that is, Ross, is the thing that I want to be doing. I want to make sure that companies who need my capital or my client's capital are delivering opportunity to those workers, be they in Texas or Florida, whether they're in California or New York or my home state of Massachusetts. I just observe that to be a more important economic act. And insofar as it is, we will be among the few who I think can put up premium returns in the coming years because we understand that really, really well. And we're prepared to make a fun strategy out of it and to put our capital in the places that we think both on a secular basis and cyclically will be tremendously important. And so I think those who don't understand that, who have their backs to it, will leave them in the dust, proverbially. They will be left behind. And ultimately, they will talk and act more like us than we will like them. And that, I think, will make us on the right side of history for sure. Greg, I'm fired up. I'm excited listening. I agree. Granted, I'm biased and I've been very open with my biases here in our alignment. And those people, while they're left in the dust, I hope that they'll finally take the time to read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith and read some of the founding doctrine of capitalism and hopefully see what we saw. And I'm excited for more and more capital to move in this direction. I remember earlier in the spring, I was speaking to a group and someone said, 
with all of this ESG stuff, look at BlackRock. They had $4 billion of outflows last year because of this ESG stuff. And I said, well, first of all, let's not use labels. Second of all, do you know what BlackRock's inflows were last year? They were like, uh, no. I was like, almost $400 billion. <laughs> you can see headlines about this little tiny pocket of people who think that allocating capital to its most efficient, most effective economic use is bad for some dogmatic reason. But there is 100 times that much capital that views this as the sort of self-evident truth that this is the optimal way to allocate capital. So I just want to say I'm fired up listening to you sharing, and I'm excited to see that future unfold. Greg, we only have a few minutes left. Can I ask you a quick, just a few rapid fire questions? Mm -hmm. In a sentence or two, what is one piece of advice you wish you had received earlier in your career? This game is really a game that rewards people who are humble in their ability to learn from their mistakes and that of others. So my ability to rapidly address my own errors, as well as to not need to make future errors for the opportunity to learn, because I can learn from things that other people have done. It is one of the biggest things that I would do. I did it, but there was so much more to do. I could have saved myself a lot of pain by learning faster. And that has a lot to do with humility around understanding all the ways when you don't hold the right view. One of the core values we teach at SOF is humility. So I really appreciate that. Second rapid fire question. One of the most valuable lessons that you've learned from your experience in impact investing that you would share with other investors who are maybe further in their career. I think I led on a little bit of it is that, and let me harken back to the one of the things that I said, there were two reasons why I was so drawn to investing. One, because it was this incredible like exercise to move money around and all that. I was excited by it. But the second thing, Ross, was that most people aren't good at it. They're not good at it because they're emotional. They bring their own personal views into play here. One of the lessons that I've learned is that the conversations that exist around labeling this or that, it's not a great use of time. What I really want to do is just make the most important observations about the things that are governing our world today and then feed those issues and opportunities back into an investment process that can understand what I should be doing with my client's capital. And so I don't come by my point of view lightly. I come by it through intensive observation and study. Empirical and anecdotal, these issues will be the issues that will be the among the most important few. And because of that, there's an investment response. It's not the opposite. My personal views don't make their become a rich investment opportunity, right? And a lot of people want to prosecute their investment opportunities based on how they feel. That's not how I think about it. I'm looking at the world and deciding for myself that one of the best ways that I can make premium returns is by standing on the issues that are moving economies. And on that basis, I think we are powerfully right, we in the impact investing community. Greg, final rapid fire question. You've been generous with your time here at Scholars of Finance, taking time with me individually here on the podcast. Why do you think the world needs an organization teaching purpose-driven, principled leadership and finance to the next generation? In many ways, you're not different from me in the sense that you go to where need and opportunity is. And I think when you poll young people today about their views, because remember, I had said something significant has happened in so far as we've normalized the way the economy looks in the sense of the financial crisis, it is not lost on young people that they are inheriting a world that has so much complexity and their confidence in the private sector has been shaken. 
by some of the things that they've seen from things spanning sort of malfeasance on the one hand, bailouts on the other, in a system that doesn't seem to be working for them, they understand that their opportunity to participate in the mainstream economy feels different to them than their parents or grandparents. And so they're reacting to it. It's important, however, to understand that equipping them with the right tools and understanding for what solutions are likely to be most successful really does center what we described at the beginning of our conversation, which is the capitalist tools don't be fooled. They can be misused and misapplied. We're seeing some of that evidence, but the tools themselves are very powerful and if used well, can lead us to the kind of world I think we all, or at least most of us want to live in. So programs like yours really do the work to help equip them and to help shape what we know to be a restless sense of being highly dissatisfied and disaffected by some of what they see, but give them the tools to make it better. And if done right, we can see a generational change. Yes, inheriting deep systemic problems and issues, but equipped with a sense of idealism for all the ways that it can be made better. And I'm excited for the waves of new leadership that we're going to see at the helms of our politics, of our private sector, of our civic sector and, and nonprofits, and really to center the idea that the epoch that we've come from is not one that is preordained to stay this way forever. We can use these tools to make for the kinds of solutions that help us live in a better world. And that's a delicious vision to share. And there's nothing, as you know, like the spirit that young people bring to the table, because that's often where change stems from, is their fierce courage and sometimes their naivete. That's something that doesn't look like it can change, can in fact change. And I'm quite supportive of your program and and any like it that equips our young people with that point of view. Thanks, Greg. I'm walking away from this conversation feeling inspired for the day, for the week, for the year, for the epoch ahead. And just want to say thank you sincerely for your time and for sharing your wisdom. Really excited to hear about the future of the Inclusive Growth Fund and all the impact that you'll make and the returns you'll drive while doing that. I'm excited for future conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. Indeed. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.